Good evening and welcome to Mouthful Smart Talk about food, wine, farming, and so much more here in Sonoma County, the North Bay, and beyond. It's Michelle Anna Jordan live in the studio. I hope you've had as good a weekend as possible in our current society, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've changed up the show a little bit. Um, because of some recent news, what we're going to talk about in the under the umbrella of what we talk about with mouthful is basil, pine nuts. I have some really interesting news about pine nuts and tomatoes. We are right smack in tomato mid-season, so now is the time to indulge and enjoy them. And you know, in a few more weeks, we'll probably have to start about uh, thinking about preserving them. But for now, it's just a time to enjoy them. So in the second two-thirds of the show or so, um, we will uh, talk about both basil and tomatoes. In the meantime, um, I want to tell you what I've been doing this afternoon. Sally Raspberry, and a hippie icon from uh, Sonoma County, from San Francisco. She passed away a few months ago. This afternoon was her memorial service, four months after her death. It was. It, it's probably still going on. I left it uh, five minutes after five, and it didn't look like it was going to wind down anytime too soon. Um, there were some great talks about Sally and who Sally was to the individual um, a lot of the consensus was that she was just full of joy and she made people feel good. And gosh, don't we need that right now? You know, it's so important. And so I'm going to do two things now. One thing I want to say what my relationship with Sally was. And I'm also going to talk about another person um, that we lost this weekend or last weekend that I didn't know about until someone at Sally's. Um, memorial service mentioned it to me and I'm quite shocked I'm still getting my sea legs on that Sally Raspberry and I probably spent less time together than any of her friends um, I think we were both little spinning spheres in our own universes um, when I finally met her and she finally met me and it's like oh yeah you're Sally Raspberry yeah you're Michelle Anna Jordan and it was like we had known each other forever and always had and continued to do so. And whenever I think about Sally, I think about, first of all, something someone told me about my grandson who just turned 18. And this was when he was four or five. And a friend who had been studying photography wanted to take him out and photograph him in a variety of places. And the reason she gave was, you can see his soul. And there's a lot of people, you can't see their soul, you can't see their personality, their eyes sort of have a curtain. They're a little bit shut down and they're very careful about what they let in. But that comment about my grandson Lucas makes me think about Sally. And I feel like Sally and I partly knew each other through our eyes. Um, you saw her soul when you looked into her eyes that's what you saw. It was who she was in the deepest sense of the word. And I loved her for that. And I like to think that maybe she loved me for something similar. Um, we didn't have the same circle of friends. We had the same circle of acquaintances, but not the same circle of friends. Um, and at home, uh, I know that most fairly recently, within the last five, six, seven years, or maybe even a little longer, she'd moved into a place where she had the opportunity to build a walkway, and she was collecting broken pottery. And so at home, I still have this box, this big wooden box full of broken pottery that I'd been saving for Sally to uh, continue building her walkway. And 
what I'm going to take from Sally uh, as inspiration is I'm going to use that pottery to build my own walkway mm. outside of my, um, I think I'm going to do it outside of my back deck and just make something really beautiful. So Sally, you had a great send off today. No one who ever met you will ever forget you and you will live on, um, I think for many generations as an icon of just what it meant to be joyful and happy and positive regardless of what life threw at you. So Michael, her, her last, the last of a few husbands, um, we all learned a couple of things about that this afternoon. And it was like, oh, my God, she was married to him. Really? Right on, Sally. So Sally Raspberry, you were one of a kind, and we absolutely loved you. And now I'm going to talk about my recent trip to Sacramento. I was in Sacramento from a week ago Friday until late Sunday night. And I was at a friend's house. I hadn't seen him in about 35 years. And he asked me to come up and cook with him for a birthday party he was giving for a friend. And I said, oh, wow, that sounds great. Sure, I would love to do that. And that um, trip... Um, influences this evening's show in a couple of reasons. First of all, he doesn't live that far from Cordy Brothers. And on Friday, the party was on Saturday, and I said to him, was on Friday when I got there, I was like, we got to go shopping because I have to start cooking really early in the morning. And he says, oh, have you ever heard of Cordy Brothers? It's right just down the street. I was like, oh, Cordy Brothers. It's fabulous. Daryl Cordy. Um, the last living member of the Cordy family that opened um, their mark, their uh, full-service grocery store in 1947, um, Daryl Cordy is alive. I think he's the last living member of the family. And it's really a remarkable, wonderful grocery store with one of the best wine selections you will ever see anywhere. It's really quite, oh, it has both depth and breadth. Let's put it that way, mm. depth and breadth. So we went there, and I found Italian pine nuts, which are almost impossible to find anywhere else. Yeah. We're going to talk about them in the second half of the show because I know a lot of people are looking for pine nuts that come from anywhere other than China, and there's a very specific reason for that. And I wanted to talk about this for a long time, but I hadn't been able to find an alternative uh, uh, reliable alternative to Chinese pine nuts until this visit to Cordy Brothers. And now I have that, so we'll be talking about that. But I was, oh God, it was either Friday night or Saturday night. I was getting ready to go to bed. I was um, looking at the internet, of course, and I couldn't get all the way online. Uh, my friend Jim had pretty weak Wi-Fi service. And plus I couldn't use my Mac Air because I didn't know his password. I saw a headline that said, great and couple dies, perishes something in cr plane crash in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And I tried to get to the um, article and I couldn't. And then I forgot about it thinking, I'm sure I don't know these people. Well, I was talking with a friend today at Sally Raspberry's memorial and it turns out it was Sarah Andrews, her husband and their son Duncan that were killed. Um, their plane was taken off from an airport, in, a small plane taken off from an airport in Nebraska. And it crashed not all that long after takeoff. And it's just, I haven't processed it yet. It's a really shocking loss. Sarah was, uh, by um, education, she was a geologist, and she wrote mystery novels based on her work with and knowledge of geology. And in, I don't know, maybe 2004, something like that, in the early 2000s, she received um, a fellowship, a grant, something like that, to the uh, Antarctica Writers, uh, Artists and Writers Program. And you have to go through a fairly rigorous application process. And then I think you, you fly, I think, to New Zealand, and then you get in this 
plane that doesn't have seats. You know, it's not a commercial airline. You're just sitting there with boxes of supplies and soldiers and all this. And I think they have something like something like four to six uh, artists or writers during a session. And you have to go, and I think you have to stay for three months because you get there and then you can't get out for a certain number of months because it's winter. And Sarah was working on a novel that took place in Antarctica. She got the invitation to go and she knew that I was obsessed with Antarctica and she offered to mentor me through the process of uh, application. And I had yet, for life reasons, I had yet to take her up on it. But it was always in the back of my mind that at some point I would get to go and um, experience Antarctica for th the three months or four months, however, however long you have to commit. So uh, at some point after she had gone, I was um, called to edit a, to co-edit a book called The World is a Kitchen, Cooking Your Way Through Culture, Stories, Recipes, and Resources. And I, it's for Traveler's Tales, which was for a long time uh, based at O'Reilly in Sebastopol. I think it's, re I'm not positive, I think it's relocated. Yes, it has in, into San Francisco. And it's uh, stories of going to cooking schools, all kinds of things. Um, a lot of the stories are really um, very foodie oriented. Some are more interesting than that. And I asked uh, Sarah if she had something that she could share with me that I could put in the book. And she um, gave me a chapter of uh, the book that she was working on after her trip to Antarctica. And I've decided that the best way to honor Sarah this evening and her family is to read you the entire thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it takes about three to four minutes. I'm going to ask you three to four minutes per page. Mm -hmm. And this is four and a half pages. So if you haven't already done so, pour yourself a glass of wine, pour yourself an iced tea, an iced coffee, whatever it is you like to drink. And let's honor Grayton's Sarah Andrews. She's a wonderful writer. And in the next few weeks, I'm going to find the archive I have with her from when she was on Mouthful for a full hour. And we'll air that in an upcoming episode. Um, but for now, we're just going to honor her with my voice and her story, which is called Pie on Ice. It appears in The World is a Kitchen, edited by me and Susan Brady. And the subtitle is Learning to cook on an Antarctic glacier. Hmm. Can you think of anything more fun? That would be very scenic. Yes, and I delicious. just love. I love the idea. And please bear with me. I'm doing the best I can with the lighting and you know all that sort of stuff. November 2005 found me on a glacier in Antarctica, where I was researching an upcoming novel in my forensic geology mystery series. Carl Kurtz's remote field camp was nothing more than an array of little tents, completely dwarfed by the immense expanse of ice on which it rested and the ragged peaks of the mighty Olympus range on which our glacier sat like a saddle on a horse's back. The men who comprised Carl's team, Bruce, Toby, Terry, and Mike, cared dearly about the food, but didn't have much time to cook. They were busy drilling into the ice to retrieve a long cylinder to be analyzed for indicators of climate change. It was up and at, it was up and at them in the mornings. Lunch was a hurried affair, and in the evenings, they just wanted to stuff their faces and head off towards the warmth of their sleeping bags. Their biggest discussion centered around which package of cookies to open next. Toby was keen on Chips Ahoy, while Mike had more subtle tastes and tended to ferret out a genteel brand of ginger snaps from New Zealand. Food is of critical importance to the success of any project in Antarctica. It's wildly beautiful, and everyone who goes there already adores being in such places but the stresses of hard work and being so far separated from loved ones are not to be trifled with. And need I mention, it's cold out there. 
the National Science Foundation, National Science Foundation's U.S. Antarctic program, which supported the project, takes pains to teach participants that food equals fuel, and we are the furnace. Eat, 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 they tell us. And they supply the best foods they can. Refrigeration is no problem. And then there are no vermin to protect against. When I arrived at the camp, the men had been there for several weeks already, and they had fallen into a routine around food, selecting items that were quick to cook and easy to find in the jumble of boxes that doubled as anchors for the cook tent. We took turns preparing meals on two propane-fired Coleman stoves. Halfway through my work there, a pair of helicopters arrived to move us and all our equipment to a second mountaintop glacier and brought a resupply of food. In our new home, Mike and Terry got out the chainsaw and cut a deep freeze for the meats, while Bruce, Carl, and Toby again threw the rest of the boxes around the skirts of the cook of the cook tent to keep the rig from blowing away in the wind. A few freshies had been sent out with the loaf, three oranges and two bananas. Fresh foods are rare in Antarctica. They have to be flown in from New Zealand on the military transports, space permitting, and too often bad weather develops on the ice and the planes have to boomerang back to Christchurch where all the fresh foods soon perish in the summer heat while they wait for the storm to blow out. Six weeks total on the continent gave me a whole new appreciation for the succulence of lettuce, which in that time I saw exactly twice, and the miracle of apples, which I had once. I enjoyed these in the galley at McMurdo Station, which is where the planes make their landing. It's even rarer for any such frost-tender delectables to make it out into the remoteness of a field camp. Terry parsed the bananas among those interested quick before they turned black in the cold and, uh, and as an after-dinner treat, cut the oranges into quadrants, making two apiece. They ate each bit of their wedges, and Terry set the skins aside to dry on a toasting plane to flavor some other dish. I ate only one of my quarters and left the other on the edge of the table. I've never been fond of eating oranges that way. The fibers stick in my teeth. At length, I noticed that people were staring at the remaining wedge. They were trying to be polite, but it was clearly a strain. Carl, who was sitting closest, observed it was it with something approaching religious devotion. That's up for grabs, I said. Carl's hand shot out faster than a gecko's tongue, matching it into the cover of his uh, palm, snatching it into the cover of his palm. Then, with consummate restraint, he cut the quarter in half and offered one of the bits to Bruce. Bruce sighed, gazing on it with a humility that mirrored the immense courtesy of Carl's gesture. That's a mighty kind offer, he said, and took it in his hand lovingly. To make myself useful and in gastronomic self-defense, I took it upon myself to inventory the food. The boxes had been packed in interest of conserving space with no consideration of grouping like items. It soon became clear that the guys didn't really know what they had. And one of their Coleman stoves had a grill. Stuffed underneath the aluminum cook table, amongst a very miscellaneous collection of cooking pots, I found a Coleman oven. They had been eating ramen noodles when they could have had steak. I began to sort the foods and found condiments, spices, herbs, and dried mushrooms. There was a four-kilogram sack of scallops at the bottom of one box. And the pork chops, steaks, and fish cutlets were scattered across three, a few here and a few there. There were more bricks of cheese than the men seemed to know about, and there were bags of frozen vegetables and berries that were being all, that were being all but ignored. I resorted the stores and then got out the marketing pen, marking pen and labeled all the boxes. But on Sunday, when the men took the time to make pancakes rather than just toasting frozen bagels and chugging coffee for breakfast, they sprinkled small handfuls of the berries on top of the cakes after they came out of the pan, still frozen. I was appalled. 
my maternal instincts came to the fore. I began to assert myself, starting with a nice prawn and scallop stir-fry with shiitake mushrooms, green beans, and carrots over brown rice with gingerbread for dessert. This last came from a packaged mix, which is not my preference, but any port in a storm, and just like Mike, I have a thing for ginger. When he saw what I was making, he hovered over that oven, anxious that I might burn it, but by some miracle it came out just right. And he plunged the first forkful into his mouth, he closed his eyes, and after he opened them again, gave me a look that was worth every instant of the time I had spent cooking. On my last morning in camp, my seventh day on the ice, I rose early and dug from the food stores all, the, all of the ingredients of a thank you present for these kind men who had supported me in my splendid visit to the ice wilds. Flour, butter, salt, strawberries, blackberries, sugar, and cornstarch. I poured the berries into a bowl and sprinkled on the sugar and cornstarch then turned to the flour. Someone in the food storehouse had packaged it in small lip Ziploc bags, pre-measured. Dredging a pie crust recipe from memory, I cut the butter into the flour and salt and reached for water from the big pot on the stove. At first, as first up that morning, I had started the daily process of melting enough snow for drinking water. For the first time ever in my career in pie making, I had to add hot water to the ingredients um, to get them perfect, properly mixed. Quick before the men began to arrive for their morning bagel thawing ceremony, I put lids on both bowls and hid them at the end of the tent. It wasn't any problem keeping them chilled. The floor of that tent sat directly on the ice, and even the top inch of the enclosure several ro sev seldom rose above 40 degrees, with both stoves running full blast. After the men had gone to work, I put the Coleman oven on one of the stoves, fired it up, and reached for the pie crust, which was now properly rested. Here I ran into a snag. The cook kit was remarkably detailed, but there was no rolling pin. Here, let's see. No worry. I borrowed their vodka bottle and rolled it out. The freezing cold aluminum cook table made this a snap. Having cracked into the liquor stores, I sprinkled a little Grand Marnier over the berries as I loaded them into the crust to give my pie a little extra yum. The next problem was that the men just wouldn't come up. Oh, wait. The next problem was that the oven just wouldn't come up to 425 degrees. At full blast in this environment, it topped out at about 325. Not daunted, I just left it in longer, an hour and a half to be exact, watching carefully for the first bubbles of juice to appear through the slits in the crust. In the meantime, I rolled out a separate pan to be baked up for a mid-morning snack. I thawed out a jar of raspberry jam to spread over most of them before I placed them in the oven. But for Mike's strips, I built up a combination of brown sugar and ground ginger. When the crust strips were ready, I carried them down the slope to the drilling tent and walked first to the position where Mike dealt sharpening the drill bits. I bent down and pointed to his, saying only, these two are brown sugar and ginger. Very delicately, he lifted one from the pan and placed it in his mouth. Sarah, you have been hiding your talents, he said. It was a sunny day with no wind. So at lunchtime, when the pie was finally ready, the men arranged their chairs outside the cook tent where they could overlook the dancing peaks of St. John's Range. I emerged triumphantly through the tent flap carrying my gift, a big knife, and six plates and forks. Mike insisted on taking my portrait with a pie and then assisted in cutting it into sixths. Bright red juice leaked out onto the ice, and we scrambled to gather it up, both because we didn't want to waste it and because on this environmentally protected continent, this was considered an unauthorized release. I ceremoniously dispersed these treasures with four-ounce slabs of cheddar cheese, 
dispersed these treasures with four ounce slabs of cheddar cheese. No need for anything else on the luncheon menu that day. Then I took my seat and lifted the first forkful to my mouth. I thought it was maybe not my best, but given the circumstances, pretty good. And the scenery, scenery and company couldn't be beat. There was silence for several moments, just long enough that I began to wonder if my new friends might not like the meal I had prepared for them. Then Toby said, crap, this is the most flavorful thing I've had in my mouth in four weeks. Cupboard love can be the adventure of a lifetime. By Sarah Andrews. Glad I'm Not a Kennedy by Shona Lang. That was um, a minor hit. Shona Lang is from New Zealand, and I believe that came out in 1986. Got a little bit of airplay on the radio, uh, but not a whole lot. But when I've done um, Wretch's radio here on KRCB, and I hope to be doing that again perhaps as soon as this fall, um, I often played this song. If you haven't seen the video... You might want to go to YouTube and see it. It's got some really beautiful, heart-wrenching images of uh, JFK, his wife, and his children. And I played that today um, in honor of his, what would have been his, or what it was, his great-niece, I think it would be his great-niece, uh, Robert, one of Robert Kennedy's um, grandchildren died over the weekend, maybe on Friday, Friday or Saturday, uh, Sersha Kennedy Hill, daughter of um, Courtney Kennedy Hill. Courtney was the youngest of uh, Robert Kennedy's 11 children. And as I may have mentioned on here or not, I met him the night before he was killed. Oh, wow. I met him and his wife. Mm. Uh, I had worked in his campaign high school. It's my first venture into politics. I was in San Diego at the time, and I went to hear him speak. And he, as he finished speaking and was leaving, was walking right past where I was standing. And he shook my hand, looked me in the eye. Ethel shook my hand. They both seemed so tiny. And then Robert reached up, and my little, my first daughter, 17 or 18, um, I was holding her. She was dressed in a little pink dress. And he took the back of his hand and rubbed it against her cheeks, uh, against her cheek. It was such a touching moment. And, you know, about 28 hours later, he was dead. And there were rumors uh, at the time that Ethel was pregnant. And people initially thought, oh, that's just silly. No, she's not. But she was. She was pregnant at the time, a few months pregnant at the time that he died. And um, the daughter was Courtney. And now it's a court. It was Courtney's daughter, Sersha, who uh, passed away probably from a drug overdose. Mm. They haven't released toxicology yet, but there was no sign of anything else. And she had written, um, including when she was a young teenager, maybe 15 or 16, she had written about her profound depression at times. Yeah. So that was why I played that song. It's been a tough weekend with at least two mass shootings. Mm -hmm. And... Yes, Mouthful is a talk show about food and wine and agriculture and feeding each other and enjoying the pleasures of the table. But I feel really strongly we can't separate anything anymore. Yeah, it's kind of all tied together. Yeah, we're all tied together. We have to do something. Mm -hmm. 
Is it just two shootings or has there been a third? Do you know? It's a third because there's Gilroy, there's El Paso, and there's one. No, but I meant a third this weekend. In this weekend. Uh, there was Ohio. Was no, there was El Paso, then Ohio. Uh-huh. But I heard oh, there was. Oh, on top of that. I've uh-huh. heard maybe in Chicago, in a park in Chicago. Oh. Seven people. Mm. Uh, one dead, one critical, five injured. Mm. But uh, when I had to leave to go to Sally Raspberry's um, memorial, um, there wasn't much information yet. Mm. But it's, this is getting, yes. this is going off the charts. We need to do something. Mm-hmm. I want to, I don't know if I, there's a way to do this. I hope I can find them. I want to start wearing a black armband mm-hmm. with um, maybe an, a patch of an assault weapon with a red line through it, something. And I just, I want to go everywhere wearing this armband. We have to do something. This is insane. Yeah, nothing seems to be changing after no. all of these things. That if keep it couldn't happening. change after um, the little kids. Yes. Is that Sandy Hook? Sandy Hook yeah. or Parkland mm-hmm. or the club in Florida. You know, I'm thinking who has been targeted? Black people have been targeted. Gay people. Jewish people. Hispanics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all young white male voters that are causing this problem something's wrong and we we can't just go back to our daily lives we can't um at the same time it's summer we have to eat Mm -hmm. we have to feed each other that's really important um one of the things i'm really interested in is the way people feed each other in other cultures Mm -hmm. when there's been a tragedy or a death there's only and at some time at some point, I'll do a whole show on that. There's really different approaches to this, but all of them boil down to, I guess, two realities. Grief takes away your hunger. Mm-hmm. You don't know you're hungry. Yeah. And that's the people who have suffered the deepest loss, the children, the lives, the brothers and sisters, those who are grieving the most intensely, they don't feel hunger. So all the rituals that come from neighbors and friends and relatives are all designed to help the grieving person eat anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, because you need to. And there are people who have broken down and cried because they'll take a, a bite of food that someone has offered them when they're deep in grief. And they'll say, oh, I had no idea I was hungry. Yeah. And when I graduated from high school um, that morning, uh, right after our um, rehearsal, we had a, you know, you have a rehearsal. This is how you walk in. This is how you walk out, blah, blah, blah. I got home and there was a message for me. I got to a friend's house and there was a message and I knew what the message was as soon as I saw the name. And one of my closest friends, we got word that morning that her fiance and I had taken their engagement pictures and you know, I'd been a part of them, been killed in um, Vietnam. Mm. Totally changed graduation, totally changed my life, changed her life. And the day, actually, I went to where I was living at the time and I made this huge pot of spaghetti with tomato sauce and instead of having cheese on top I put the cheese into the sauce salted it perfectly and it was if you make a circle with your arms it was about that big wow and Tommy Garden was the young man who died and he lived a block his family lived a block away from where I was living and I walked down the street with this covered in aluminum foil and I knocked on the door and Tommy's mother who I didn't know well. She opened the door and I put it in her arms. And you could see, despite everything that had just happened and how shattered she was, she got the aroma and the sensation. And she said, oh, it's still warm. Mm. And I could see on some visceral level, the warmth of that bowl of spaghetti gave her a little bit of comfort. Mm-hmm. So one of the th- there's a reason that people take casseroles. To people who have just lost someone, there's a reason people show up with food Mm. because you have no idea you're hungry, but you need to eat. Yes. 
So uh, that's been sort of the that's sort of the foundation of tonight's show. But because it's summer, because I went to Cordy Brothers, and because there's been a lot of conversation lately on Facebook about pine nuts, I wanted to talk about pine nuts, basil, and pesto. So what I have here, can you hear it? Mm. I have pine nuts from Cordy Brothers. Ooh. They are um, Portofino brand. Hmm. They are Italian. It has been very, very difficult to find um, any pine nuts from anywhere except China. Hmm. Uh, when Traversos was still open, um, I got a lot of pine nuts from them. And for a reason I'll tell you about in a few minutes, I went back and asked them where they were from. They, it was very hard for them to find out. Hmm. The source wasn't listed, uh, you know, for the, the distributor they got them from uh, didn't list the source. And eventually they were able to track it down. And it's like, oh, they're from China. Uh-huh. And I think lately, like when I go to Andy's Market in Sebastopol, it, the pine nuts are labeled with a source. Mm-hmm. And the pine nuts at Trader Joe's are labeled with a source. They're from Korea. Hmm. But there's something. Have you ever heard about pine mouth? No. Okay, pine mouth is a syndrome. And can't remember what year I got it. It was, God, at least 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And one day, one evening, I noticed I had this horribly bitter taste in my mouth. Hmm. Just bitter. And I hadn't, you know, I drink water, was a little bitter. And when the water was gone, I had this horrible bitter taste. It eclipsed the taste of wine. And I could think, you know, carrots would taste like carrots. Pasta would taste like pasta. But always right on the tail of anything I was eating was this persistent bitter taste. Mm. And I was busy, thankfully. But in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, my, is this going to destroy my career? Has, has something gone wrong and I've lost my ability to taste? Especially when it comes to wine, because I could not have written about the nuances of any of the wines I was tasting. Mm-hmm. And then it vanished. It was about 10, 12 days. Suddenly it just wasn't there anymore. Hmm. And I quit thinking about it. But then I came across an article about pine mouth syndrome. Interesting. And it turned, China has planted something like, I don't know, a couple million acres of uh, pine tri- trees for pine nuts. But some of those, I think it's two, I'm not positive, but I think it's two of the varieties are not recommended for human consumption. Mm. And the last time I checked, science, scientists were not sure yet, but they thought it was one of the fatty acids in these two varieties that were not recommended for human consumption caused this. Mm. And they caused it in, from what I can gather, about 10 to 15% of the population. Mm-hmm. But people go, I mean, people thought they had cancer. Mm. People, or people think they have cancer. They think they have a brain tumor. <laughs> uh, they panic. It sometimes lasts for up to three months. Wow. And for quite a while, doctors had no idea what it was. And now there's a Facebook page on pine mouth syndrome, and you can find articles about it. Mm. Um, and the way to avoid it is to find pine nuts from Italy or from America. They're very expensive, and they're very, very hard to find. So I was up cooking for a friend in um, Sacramento last weekend, and we went to Cordy Brothers, Daryl Cordy, wonderful man. He's a grocer. He gets upset if anyone praises him as anything other than a grocer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an expert in Hawaii, a Hawaiian. He's an expert in Italian wine. He's an expert in Italian olive oils and Ital- really in olive oils from around the world. When I was writing the first edition of my book, Oil and Vinegar, he was the person I went to to find out the truth about balsamic vinegar. Hmm. And he was the person who had the real balsamic vinegar, almost $300 for a 100 milliliter bottle. But he was the one who told me the true story. And if, if Daryl Cordy tells you a story, savor it and believe it. So uh, there on a shelf, Italian pine nuts. Hmm. You can now make traditional pesto. Uh, it's tw- it's a 20 gram package, so about three quarters of an ounce. Um, that's one batch of pesto, mm-hmm. 5.99. Um, 
a better price than a lot of the, you know some of the prices I've seen online. It's mm-hmm. like thirty dollars for well thirty dollars for eight ounces. That's actually not that bad, but pine nuts are traditional in basil. Mm-hmm. And a colleague was asking. He said something like. A half a cup of pine nuts cost me $30. I'm not going to be making basil very often. Mm-hmm. So people were giving their alternatives. Do you make pesto? No. Okay. I want to. Okay. It's, okay. It, I mean, it's it's a pretty, I mean, I've seen it done uh-huh. so many times. Yeah. But yeah. How have you seen it? Uh, television, a lot. Okay. And how? what apparatus did they use to grind the pesto? Usually they just use a, f- a food processor. The best way to do it is by hand. Yeah. By hand or with a surabachi. Mm. Um, chopping it in a food processor, I think, bruises it a little too much. It's a little too brutal. Yeah. And I have an aversion to pesto in the winter. Mm. I just, no, we don't. It's a summer thing. Yeah. As Frederic Lavoie-Pierre, who was a mouthful um, producer for a long time, as she said, much to the embarrassment of her son, because I put it into a magazine article, you shouldn't plant basil and you can, until you can lie down on the ground naked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> basil is a hot weather item. Oh. Hot we- it, it grows, it thrives, and tastes best in hot weather. Mm-hmm. And it goes with hot weather food. So it goes, of course, beautifully with tomatoes, but it also grow- goes really, really well with uh, zucchini, with green beans and with uh, sweet peppers. Ah. And so what you want to do is, for pesto, you really want to get Genovese. There's a lot of different kinds. There's Thai basil, chocolate, all different kinds of basil. But you want the big leaf basil that is traditionally called Genovese Hmm. basil. And you want to take the leaves off. You want to chop. Well, actually, you want to set the leaves aside. You want to get out your surabachi. You want a few cloves of garlic mm. and some salt and then you grind it in the surabachi. Surabachi is a Japanese mortar and pestle that is it's a bowl, it's a porcelain bowl and it has ridges on the inside. So the grinding process is very very quick. Mm-hmm. And the thing is you can never turn garlic into a puree in a food processor. Yeah. You just get little chunks, little tiny chunks. Just like really fine minced. Exactly. Yeah. If you do it in a sirabachi, you can reduce that to a puree fairly quickly. Mm. And then you add, what I do, the way I do it is I do um, three quarters basil and one quarter Italian parsley leaves. Because if you add the Italian parsley leaves, you know how basil, like if you cook basil, say ba- uh, pesto pizza, yeah. the basil turns black. Mm-hmm. Basil should never be cooked. Yes. Uh, but it will even turn black sitting at room temperature. Hmm. The um, um, Italian parsley stops that from happening. Mm. It keeps it nice and green. Is it an acidity thing? Or is it like, you know, how you can put lemon? It has something to do with oxidation, yeah. and I need to study that a little bit more before cool. I know. Yeah. It has something to do with the oxidation. Mm. Um, and then you, um, the way I make it, you have the salt, you have enough salt, you put in the basil, you put in the parsley, um, and then you want to toast the pine nuts lightly. And what I do is I put about two-thirds of them into the surabachi and grind them, but not too much. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put them into a powder. You want some texture. And then if you're going to eat it right then and not, say, put it in the freezer because that's another whole process, you add about a tablespoon or two of butter. Hmm. This is a trick from well-known Italian authors and chefs you add some butter and that adds this voluptuous flavor and texture and then you stir in the olive oil mm-hmm. and then you put in the rest of the uh pine nuts yeah and that's it and if you don't have pine nuts toasted walnuts work well mm-hmm. some people put in pistachio hmm. and that's fine i tend to prefer in those situations i tend to prefer walnuts I mean, then you put it in, and the way you enjoy it is with pasta, obviously. Spaghetti, spaghettini, or linguine are the traditional ones. And the way you do it is you cook the pasta according to package directions. You drain it, or you, you take it out of the cooking pot with a pasta fork. 
before you while while the uh, pasta is cooking, you put about half of the pesto into your serving bowl, mm-hmm. and then you put the pasta on top of it. And you either use your uh, f- your pasta fork or two forks, and you fluff it. But you, what you want is you want the cooking water mm-hmm. from the pasta. You want some of that, yeah. which helps warm up the uh, pesto without turning it black. Mm. And so you get it until it's nicely coated, put it on the table, let people help themselves, and then you put the um, remaining pesto next to it, and they can take a nice dollop and put that on. Mm -hmm. So that is pesto. That's the best way to make pesto. Um, I think it's pretty easy. I think that uh, pesto made in a food processor gets a little cloying, Mm -hmm. a little gloppy, a little uh, cloying. So I always make it this way. Mm -hmm. And if you want to make a pesto pizza, cook a pizza dough in a hot oven, take it out, use a pastry brush to put the pesto on it after you've cooked it, Ah. not before. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to do it. Um, So if we have something queued up, we're going to take a little musical break and we'll be back up with our final segment here on Mouthful. A Saturday job pays six and six down A copy boy at the Chronicle Five cigarettes and two silver half-crowns Meeting Vincent Mark Tony's in town Boy, do we get around Basil sits there on the table for subs But not a part of the brine nylon club Over the black church Over the black gate And the shadow That was Mark Knopfler with a song called Basil, in case you couldn't tell that from the words. Um, Not a lot of songs about basil, not a lot of songs about tomatoes either. Um, But back to pesto. And now we see everything. I mean, arugula pesto, Mm. you know, sorrel pesto. And pesto means paste, so I guess it's not totally wrong to make it with other things yeah it kind of reminds me i mean i wasn't necessarily very conscious at the time but i think it was like the 80s there was a lot of infusions with vinegar so there was like tarragon vinegar and oh, things yeah. like that so it would be like yeah. something like that you, oh that could go well in this Boom. yeah yeah and you know sauces made with herbs <laughs> and olive oil and usually garlic are really good oh yeah i just get annoyed when it's all called pesto because it just seems like it's just becomes such a thing and everyone's riffing off of basil pesto and I just I kind of like traditional names Mm -hmm. so if I make a sauce uh, and I do this quite often uh, garlic lime juice a serrano and lots of cilantro and olive oil I don't call it cilantro pesto I call it cilantro sauce or cilantro salsa Mm -hmm. so you know I'm a pedant I like Mm -hmm. words what can I say but there is a dish a sauce from the south of France. Have you heard of pistou? No. Okay. A lot of people will say pistou because they've heard the word and what they're what they mean when they say it is pesto. Ah. But pistou is actually a different thing, and it's from Provence, and it's the Provence Provencal equivalent of pesto. Um, but it ha- here's my recipe for it that appears in the Good Cook's Book of Tomatoes. It's got five garlic cloves ground in a surabachi like I talk about, kosher salt, black pepper, 
lots of fresh ba- I put five cups of fresh basil wow. leaves in and then two tomatoes that you've seeded and chopped and then olive oil and some jack cheese so you put this all together in a sauce taste it enough so that the balance of salt and acid is just right and it's a classic dish in uh, certain soups summer soups from that region hmm. just like um, it's common to put pesto into a minestrone huh. from Italy Interesting. And you can do the same thing with Pistu. Hmm. So that's the Provencal version. And the main difference is that there are tomatoes in it. And there are no tomatoes in uh, pesto. Huh. So there you go. And I wanted to say something about tomatoes. that We were going to do this last week or the week before. And we didn't quite have time. The best place right now, if you are not growing tomatoes, to get them is at a farm stand or a farmer's market. And the, th- the most important thing is a tomato should be heavy for its size. Oh, nice. So if the toma- you pick up a tomato and it feels kind of light, mm-hmm. its flesh might be mealy or it might have huge air pockets. So if a tomato is heavy for its size, you have a really good chance of getting a very, very good tomato. Ah. When you get that tomato home, do not put it in the refrigerator at all. My friend Jim, he had all his tomatoes in the refrigerator. I took them out. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is if a tomato is under 58 degrees for more than a few hours, its fre- flesh turns mealy. Oh. So you, you don't want to do that. If, however, you have tomatoes and they're going bad, just real quickly chop them coarsely. Just chop them up really quickly. Add a little salt and a little olive oil. And then you can put them in the fridge and it'll extend their life by about two days. Interesting. And you can do various sauces, various sauces with them at that point. Huh. And the... We've flown by again. Yeah. It's another hour, so I want to tell you, next Sunday, we're going to have a pre-recorded show that talks about um, the upcoming Gravenstein Apple Fair, which is taking place on uh, August 17th and August 18th. We'll be focusing on the Artisan Tasting Lounge, Mm -hmm. which is a really lovely place to hang out. We're also going to try, um, I'm not sure if we're going to succeed, but we're going to try to get somebody to come and talk about um, security. And what sort of security provisions there are, because I know oh, that yeah. people after Gilroy and some of the other things. So that's next Sunday. And then um, we've also got the uh, Taste of Sonoma, the big event put on by the um, uh, winery, uh, the big winery association here in Sonoma County. That'll be coming up in August, too. And on that note, take care of yourself. Take care of your loved ones. Say hi to strangers dress to make somebody in the common smile and eat something really delicious and meet me back here next Sunday for another yummy episode of Mouthful. Smart talk about food, wine, and farming in the North Bay and beyond here on KRCB Radio 91. Now they call it Telecom Central.